Hello and welcome back to a bonus episode of The Climate Briefing. It's great to have you with us. I'm Ben Horton and I'm speaking to you from a very chilly media studio at Chatham House. I'm joined by my colleague Anna, who is sheltering over the other side of the room. How are you doing, Anna? I'm fine. I should have bought a coat, as you said. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But we're here today to bring you a really, really fascinating episode, which is incredibly timely as well. Anna, maybe you could tell us a bit about it. Sure, happy to. So as all listeners will be aware, the UK is hosting COP26 this year, but it is also presiding over the G7. And in just a few days' time, it is hosting a critical summit in Cornwall, which will gather all the G7 heads of state. And this could provide an excellent opportunity for accelerating climate action in the run-up to COP26. So to talk about this, I was joined by Rachel Kite, who serves as Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University and who has held a range of interesting positions within, for instance, the World Bank Group and the UN system. Awesome. Very much looking forward to listening, Anna. So I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Rachel Kite, who is Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University and a member of the UN Secretary General's High-Level Advisory Group on Climate Action. Rachel Kite is also an advisor to the UK Government on Climate Diplomacy, Chair of the Rwanda Green Fund, and Chair of the ESG Committee of the Board of the Private Infrastructure Development Group. She has previously served as Special Representative of the UN Secretary General and Chief Executive Officer of Sustainable Energy for All, and World Bank Group Vice President and Special Envoy for Climate Change, to just give a few examples. So an absolutely fantastic and super interesting career. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to be interviewed for the Climate Briefing today. Well, it's lovely to be with you. It's nice to uh, be talking with you, Anna. The UK is presiding over the G7 this year, and in the run-up to the G7 Leaders Summit, which is taking place in Cornwall in just a few days' time, my colleague Ben and I thought it would be very interesting and relevant to do a bonus episode of the Climate Briefing, which focuses on how the G7 can accelerate climate action in the run-up to COP26. And I'm absolutely delighted that you're here with me on Zoom to provide your insights and thoughts on this issue. So I wanted to start by taking a bit of a step back and ask you how climate change has been addressed within the G7 in recent years. What has been achieved, if anything, and how important is this forum when it comes to addressing climate change? Well, that's a really good question because I think when you're working on climate change, you often feel that things aren't going very fast, certainly not going fast enough, and the science bears that out. But then when you when you look back, you, you see that there has been quite, I mean, rapid shifts really in the way that the world thinks about climate in, in terms of mainstream geopolitical relationships or international economic governance. And you can see that in the G7 as well. So in the run-up to the Paris Agreement, the G7, you know, if you were lucky, you'd sort of get a, a name check for climate change. But in the German G7 in June, the June before the Paris uh, Climate Summit, It was possible to get, under Chancellor Merkel's leadership, a commitment from the G7 to basically move towards effective carbon pricing. And that gave momentum, which had started to build at the climate summit in the September of the year before, so a year before Paris, Ban Ki-moon called a climate summit. What he was trying to do was get political leaders to take responsibility for the climate agenda, not leave it with environment ministers at that time. 
And so building on that where carbon pricing had been considered to be a sort of necessary, if insufficient, policy tool, we got some political uh, impetus from the G7. And then, you know, running into Paris, uh, certainly uh, a number of countries talking about effective carbon pricing in their INDCs, as they were then, the, pl the plans that the governments would use. Since then, the G7 has referred to climate change. And of course, then under the Trump administration, mention of climate change sort of either didn't appear or it, it was nothing or there was no communique. And so the G7's really been left on the beach at high tide when it comes to an impetus for climate action. Similarly, the G20, which in fact, in fact has been more important than the G7 because obviously with the, with the key emerging markets and with China as part of the debate, certainly that's been where really important leadership issues like removing fossil fuel subsidies, et cetera, have been found. But now you have a seven that are aligned. They are aligned since September of 2020 when there's sort of race to zero, quote, unquote, this uh, commitment to net zero emissions economies by 2050 or thereabouts really took off following Xi Jinping's announcement of the General Assembly, following the European Union's Green Deal, and then with the Biden administration coming into power. So now you really have an opportunity for the first time for a long time for the G7 to actually be the leaders that we need them to be. And you're starting to see that emerging in the pre-diplomacy before Cornwall. How important do you think it is that the UK is both chairing the G7 this year and providing over COP26 in November, and that Italy is presiding over the G20 and is co-hosting the COP? Does it matter a lot? Well, I think it matters a lot if you decide to use it strategically. And the, the evidence is that the UK, after perhaps a little bit of fumbling, you know, notwithstanding the strain on government responding to a pandemic and obviously still trying to figure out what the impact of Brexit is on many aspects of British life, it is the opportunity to cement climate leadership and the kind of geopolitical economic governance and economic leadership that must mainstream climate issues. So it's, it's a chance when you're holding both meetings to fuse the agendas once and for all. The same for Italy's co-hosting of, of COP26 and the G20. Once and for all, no more sort of arguments from one year to the next about whether or not there should be a working group on sustainable finance or whether it should be energy and climate or just climate or all the sort of arguing over text. Can we once and for all understand that we will not reach prosperity or achieve prosperity or restore prosperity without truly managing this threat in plain sight, this extraordinary moment where we need to manage our way through climate change. So it, so that's all set up nicely. Now, what does that actually mean? This means a total government approach. So this means that your chancellor and your business minister and your prime minister in any given country right, have to be as climate smart as your environment minister and your lead within the cabinet on, on climate action. And I think that's where we're beginning to see some very interesting things happen. You're starting to see a total government approach unapologetically from the United States, where Janet Yellen, as the Secretary of the Treasury, is as important as uh, Envoy Kerry running around the world, getting everybody organised and in line. And you're starting to see every cabinet minister with key performance indicators on climate, right? We, we've never seen this so explicitly before in the American system. And the UK, I think, has, has struggled at times to be coherent, you know, and has allowed itself 
to then be distracted by arguments over are we building a coal plant in Cumbria or are we saying that we're powering past coal? Are we exploring for new oil and gas in, in the North Sea or are we actually on a fast track to an extremely ambitious uh, agreement? And then how do you, if you've got those kinds of domestic distractions, how do you play the shepherding role that you would need to play at the leadership of the G7 at this time? So played well, this is a pivot. This There should be no G7 after this where climate isn't embedded in the sort of DNA of the meeting. Zooming in on the UK's presidency of the G7, there's now, of course, a lot of focus on the upcoming Leaders' Summit, but there have already been meetings with the G7 finance ministers, the G7 climate and environment ministers, and the G7 foreign ministers and development ministers during the presidency so far. How has climate change figured at these meetings? Well, I think one thing to think about in terms of multilateral negotiations and diplomacy is it's always messy until it isn't. And so there's been lots of, I think, angst and heartburn about how sort of late in the process this is all coming together. Where has the international community been uh, in its cooperation on some of these issues and why things are taking so long? But my hope is that we're just a few weeks to go to Cornwall, that this is going to come together. And the evidence is that it's beginning to. So you're starting to see things being taken off the table because they've been sorted out. So the spring meetings of the World Bank and the IMF were very important because we started to make progress on the economic solidarity and support for those countries that are suffering through an extraordinary liquidity crisis as the as the result of COVID-19. And there is no progress to be made on climate action if the world doesn't turn up and sort of underline the commitment of leaving no one behind, which was a big part of the Paris Agreement. Now, there's much more to be done, and more of that will come into focus at the G7 and then at the G20 over the summer. And that includes really being very specific about how fast agreements that have been made on debt relief will be processed with the special drawing rights issue to the IMF. How will those rights be reallocated back to those countries that really need it? And then what kinds of conditions are going to be put on that so that those countries can use it for the things that they need? So that started to move off the table. Secondly, the ministers of environment and climate met recently, and they again took issues off the table that they need to take off the table. So once and for all, all of the members of the G7 have agreed to stop financing coal overseas. This was important because Japan was still, up until this meeting, hanging on to that part of their strategy. Taking that away now means that at the G20, all focus goes on China, which is the last large financier of coal overseas. Now, the G7 have to move very quickly through their energy transition at home, and we started to see some tightening up of the language about when the G7 believes it's going to get to net zero's energy systems sort of in the 2030s. It's a bit woolly, but then that gives us time to tighten that up on the way, way to Glasgow. So you also started to see this, which I think is important for the UK government, the bringing together of the nature debate with the climate debate. And you started to see for the first time in the G7 language around 30 by 30. So 30% of the planet to be restored or protected by, by, by 2030. Uh, and so I, I think there's a maneuvering of the G7 process into place. But I have to say that all eyes are on the finance ministers and the heads of state because there are three things the world needs. It needs to make significant real-time 
on the ground progress in global distribution of vaccines. It's it's kind of the basis of solidarity and trust, as the Secretary General has said. You know, if everybody can't hope to get a jab in their arm, how can you ask anybody to join with you in, in, in any in any other enterprise, right? So that's first. Then second is continuing to to deal with the economic risk of divergence that vulnerable countries become more vulnerable and the richer sort of do well in the recovery. So this is the issue of liquidity and debt and, and support. And then I think how to make sure that that recovery is green. And so there'll be a big focus on is the multilateral development bank and the development finance industry going to get any more support? Is there going to be more capital coming in? Is that capital going to be only green? So big sort of structural questions. And then third is what is the commensurate offer to that of the Chinese, who have been the largest investors in green infrastructure and in developing countries in recent years. If we're going to say, no, we won't finance coal, and we, we, we're going to pivot away from fossil fuels really quickly, and this is the only way to go, how are we going to help those countries that still have to build that infrastructure, who still have to meet the basic needs, who are still growing and industrializing and urbanizing? Are we going to come up with packages, finance, public and private, uh, which invest in those countries at scale, or are we going to change the terms of the debate so that they can go to the markets and get the resources they need to invest in their green growth? We have to see the beginning of a shape of a package that looks like that at the G7. Otherwise, I think this year will not live up to the expectations or what we need of it. Thanks very much. That's super interesting. And uh, how much of this do you think we can expect or hope will be achieved in Cornwall in the next few weeks? Yeah, no, I'm not Pollyanna. And I understand the domestic difficulties. For President Biden, he's set out the scale of his ambition. He now has to deal with a senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, who holds the balance of the vote in the Senate. There's a lot that can be done, but it would be much easier if Congress was on side, right? So we're at a very important moment of leadership. So the economics are pretty compelling. There is now a sort of violent agreement from everybody from the International Renewable Energy Agency to the International Energy Agency, who haven't agreed on much for the, you know, for the last 15, 20 years, through to Greenpeace, through to you know, everybody about what is the direction of travel and the speed with which we have to move down that. We're seeing extraordinary sort of excitement and pledging and there is a very real risk of greenwashing and green wishing i think which is a bigger problem but you know everybody's kind of pointed in the right direction there are big issues for how china manages its economy there are big issues for you know russia and iran and places that are not in the mainstream of this debate how we bring everybody together but now this is about the people who are in leadership right now actually putting their pedal to the metal, really. And can the UK, can the Prime Minister, because this becomes personal politics, personal persuasion, you know, get this group of leaders to be the best that they can be. I mean, it, you know, this is summitry and, and it's summitry that really matters. So if an ambitious outcome on climate or ambitious outcomes on climate are achieved throughout the G7 process now in the run-up to COP26, how might that impact dynamics in the COP process? And what might happen if the G7 under so to speak, this year? 
So I think the short answer to that is finance, finance, finance. And if finance isn't clear, then it makes the politics of COP very, very difficult. So hanging over the whole climate negotiations has been this recurrent inability of developed countries to meet the promises that they made a decade or more ago. And this crystallizes itself in the debate around $100 billion of finance to flow each year, every year, and you know, by 2020. So we shot past that. There are all kinds of problems in this. You know, what counts within that $100 billion? Who counts the $100 billion? Who verifies the $100 billion? But we're at a point where we're about $20 billion shy, I think. And if the G7 or in the process of, of the summer between the G7 and G20, if that $100 billion was met in a way that most people could reasonably agree it was indeed met or it was indeed going to be realised, that opens up uh, all kinds of political space for agreement that I think is very difficult to find if we don't solve that problem. So that means uh, more money on the table. The US is back in the game. The US has to meet its financial commitments and then perhaps up them. It's not an impossible thing to do. The UK is hampered in this by the decision which most people really just don't understand from a political point of view, most people being most countries and then most observers in the UK, I think, with this decision to release themselves from the 0.7% of overseas development assistance. So this is the opposite of the gift that keeps on giving. It is the shot in the foot that keeps on hurting. And it was just going to keep on hurting because we are in the process of mobilizing these resources. So that needs to be solved, I think. But then uh, there needs to be progress on what is the level of generosity of financing, especially on adaptation and resilience and nature-based solutions going forward. So from the period of 2020 to 25 or up to 2030, how generous is the developed world going to be? And what are the mechanisms for this finance to flow? You mentioned in the beginning that I, I chair the Rwanda Green Fund for NEWA. And I have to tell you, when I'm sitting in that seat, looking at the development finance industry from the perspective of a fund, which I think is very well set up, which would normally receive funds and then be able to spend or, or mobilize funding into projects that fall within the nationally determined contribution. So they fall within this plan, which is a right-sized plan for Rwanda. The degree of nickeling and diming and, well, we don't like this, but we like that. Well, we only want to finance that and not this is absurd. So if we're asking developing countries to come up with plans, they have to be Paris aligned. Okay, They have to have priorities. It has to be clear how the money is going to be managed. And it has to be managed to the standards that we're all comfortable with. Well, okay, we can check every one of those boxes in this particular case. And then still... You have some proclivity, which means that you don't want to fund this kind of thing. You want to fund that. No, we have. If we're going to get to speed and scale, so I think the G7 can send some very strong messages about volume of finance, the way the finance should be moving and managed, and of course the G7 they are the biggest shareholders of the MDBs, and if the MDBs are really going to become vehicles for mobilisation, I would say. On the private sector side, they need to be mobilizing finance for distribution, i.e. mobilizing it, getting deals, and then pushing that off into the private sector so that we can use that multilateral balance sheet much more effectively. If all of that's going to happen, the G7 has to, have, has to be speaking with one voice. So before we wrap up this interview, I wanted to touch briefly on the G20. What would a good outcome on climate change within the G20 look like ahead of COP26 in your view? 
Yeah, so the G20 is a place where some of the thinking happens and you socialize the thinking with a broader group of economies. And so having China and the US co-chair work on sustainable finance, climate, I think is really important. The Indonesians who will take the G20 after Italy are already making indications that they want to understand relationships between financial systems and food, which I think is really important because, you know, food waste loss is a big part of the problem. And and also being able to give everybody access to nutritious diets is a fundamental part of the sort of equality that we need to see in the recovery. So first of all, that that working group cemented that that continues and that there's no swapping out of priorities between presidencies. Secondly, there's a very important meeting going to be happening in Venice in early July, uh, which is sort of the G20 climate meeting. And there, I think, putting the final knife into fossil fuel subsidies, but with, with really strict deadlines, not sort of when anybody wants to over the next 10 years, having the G20 respond to the IEA net zero report, which has recently come out, which suggests that you know energy systems need to be carbon neutral in the middle of the 2030s. We, you know, so we've got some very important economies there that need to say when they're going to do that and what kind of help they need to get there. I think this is the kind of thing that Indonesia was saying at the Biden summit. We had both South Africa and Indonesia saying, look, we, we're prepared to make even bigger pledges, but we will need help. And then I think coal is where everything has to start. We have to wean ourselves off coal and very quickly. And that's a big issue for a number of G20 countries. All eyes are going to be on Australia, you know, which is sort of continuing to take a talk to the hand approach to <laughs> the international alignment that is taking place. And um, it's interesting to see how, how long they can hold out, I think. Obviously, they've got money in politics just like perhaps the United States has, which influences things, but um, they are becoming increasingly isolated. And if China indicates over the course of the summer when it's going to peak its coal, which observers think that it will do, Australia is going to be feeling itself quite uh, alone, I think. Rachel Kite, this has been a fantastically interesting discussion. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. No, thank you. All right. Well, that is it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation between Anna and Rachel Kite. We will be back in your feeds very soon with a standard episode, which will be looking at the relationship between climate change and development. So watch out for that. In the meantime, if you want to keep up with the work of the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme at Chatham House, you can follow us on Twitter at ch underscore environment or visit the website www.chathamhouse.org. We would very much appreciate it if you could subscribe on whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this episode and also leave us a review because it makes it much easier for other people to find us. Till next time, thanks for listening. (music) 